Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to the Shoes with Biscuit podcast. I'm your host Alex Whiteley, and joining me today is uh, somebody who's been on been on use. I did this the wrong way round. Now, um, usually what I do is I sweeten people up by bringing them on the biscuit, and then be like throw them on you, so I can be like, Aah! you know. But uh, joining me is, is <laughs> I went in at the deep end. You did, you really did. This is Dr. Nama Khan, um, a National Geographic Explorer and a, a d- Conservation Director at National Park Rescue. I said it better this time. Uh, <laughs> last time totally <laughs> How are you, sir? You good? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, enjoying the change of the seasons and the, the birds are all singing. The lambs are out, so it's a good time to be alive. We've got, in work, we've got a hedgehog, right? And it, it, I saw him the other day. And he's like, oh, wow, this is cool. Spring. And then it started snowing. I bet he thought, I woke up to What the hell's going on? Yeah. <laughs> We've just found some hedgehog poo in our, our garden for the first time. But my sister-in-law bought us a hedgehog house and a load of hedgehog food about two years ago when we didn't have a hedgehog but now we've got one so we can finally use the hedgehog house and the hedgehog food and stuff so i put it all out in the garden this hedgehog's funny he's so tame he just comes up to me it doesn't come up to me but like if, if he's like know, a couple of feet away from me he won't run away unless i make any sudden right. movements so he'll come right up to me and if i move too quickly then he's like oh i'm not still not too sure <laughs> um Anyway, guys, thanks very much for for, for joining us uh, to listen to this this podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to bring it to you because we have Niall McCann, who's from Sh- from Shrewsbury originally, who went and conquered the world. <laughs> you know, um, would you like to tell people like where where is it you you come from in Shrewsbury? Where, where is it you were raised? Where did you start your life? <laughs> yeah, raised in Gaines Park, went to Oxon School. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting, Oxen seems to have been a bit of a funnel for interesting people. My, my, my brothers have gone on to do very interesting things with their lives, but you've got the, the Foster brothers who um, were very, very good cricketers. Um, the, the Joe Hart, of course, went, mm-hmm. went through Oxen. Various others, the, the Shantry brothers, again, professional cricketers. So it was an interesting cohort that, that, that time in the early 90s with a bunch of people that came out of Gaines Park and ended up going on to do some interesting things with their lives. I bet that made everybody want to go to the <laughs> that school, like, go there, you'll be famous, you, you're going to do something with your life, you know? I do wonder whether it's actually been a, used as a recruitment tool, the fact that there was this, this crop of folk going through there. Isn't it something... It may well have fallen far in the last few years, I don't know. From there, how do you become a National Geographic Explorer? What, what happens? Um, how do you get raised into that? I wouldn't say it was my schooling. I'm, I'm not. I'm not convinced that Mr. Parkinson and Mrs. Purdue, um, for all of their wonderful qualities as teachers, had much of a formative impact on me in terms of my trajectory as an explorer. That really came from family and yeah. the fact that I was surrounded by family members for whom adventure and exploration was just just the done thing. It, it wasn't something that was unusual. So going out and having an adventure close to home or further away from home was just was just de rigueur it was just the thing that people did and that was great for me as a youngster just realizing that this type of thing's accessible so i think the, the biggest thing stopping people doing really interesting adventures is that they think it's unaccessible to them whereas really it's not at all you've got nestcliff just on your doorsteps so you can have one hell of an adventure getting to nestcliff from shrewsbury having an adventure around there and then getting back again there's so much we can do on our doorstep let alone further afield and i was very lucky that my parents and, and then my brother's going on and my grandparents previously opened up the possibility of adventure and exploration just made it seem like the done thing i always remember i, I mean I, when i was young we used to live in dorley in telford 
And uh, there was these woods. They're not there anymore. They kind of removed these woods, which was such a shame because I used to go there with our rucksacks, with a picnic, and disappear in these woods for day for a day, you know, days. That's not true. <laughs> for a day or so, you know. And we just we'd set up camp somewhere and we pretend we were adventurers and exploring when we were younger, you know, because that's the that's the idea as a kid, and that you want to go on these adventures and it's really exciting, something really appealing about about doing that as a kid. And and you're right, Shropshire's just the perfect place for it. You know, so much greenery around. Um, it's an amazing place to grow up. You're right. It's, it's England's most rural county. Very few people, loads of greenery around, loads of really wonderful places such as Nestcliff, the Sniper Stones, the Long Mins, Earls Hill. There's so many great places to go and have little adventures as a kid. The key then is is taking that childhood enthusiasm and maintaining it through puberty. Because <laughs> 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 most people hit those awkward teenage years. And their enthusiasm for the natural world and their enthusiasm for going outdoors and doing good things kind of dies a death as you pick up an interest in girls or boys or whatever it is you're interested in. But then, for whatever reason, uh, I guess I wasn't that interested in girls or boys and I was more interested in doing, doing all these other things instead and kept it going into adulthood. I always find it a bit of a shame that people would say, oh, I'm, I'm too old to do this now. I was like, oh, no, you're not. You're just too old in your head. Yeah. Just get out and do it. Um, when, when, you, when you go, when, when you're young, um and you're going with your family to explore what are you looking for are you looking for the thrill the excitement are you learning uh, what's the most exciting and most appealing thing to you for me from a young age the, the thing i was always looking for and wanting to encounter was wildlife of, of, of any kind that, that could be something as like a, a grass snake i still remember the first time seeing a grass snake and one of the people we were with picked it up and i couldn't believe this it's a man holding a snake it's absolutely extraordinary so that type of thing from a young age just really instilled in me a love of finding adventure in the natural world, looking for animals to try and sneak up on, get as close as you can to having these close encounters. That really fueled the fire in me. And I've taken that on in my career. And that's been my route, I suppose, into International Geographic is my work in biology. And my, yeah, my desire to be close to animals and see animals, and study them and then conserve them. There's a natural progression in that. But it all started with, crawling around the woods and the hills in Shropshire looking for wildlife. Uh, I wonder who else went on to do something famous uh, doing that in Shropshire. Hmm. Mr. Charles Darwin himself, you know, he's, that's how, it, <laughs> because there's a lot, there's a lot to be admired about just what you're right. Wildlife is beautiful. We just, you know, we talk about hedgehogs and, uh, it's it's something beautiful where you've got this thing on a doorstep because you don't look for it. If you don't look for it, I don't think you're going to see it, are you? Especially if, if you live in an urban area. You know, like I remember the first time I ever saw a fox in the town. This is in Wrexham, actually. It wasn't in, in Shrewsbury. And I was just kind of like, whoa, until I did some research. Foxes are everywhere in an urban environment. And it's just crazy to think about, you know. I, love it. I bet lockdown has really improved people's ability to spot wildlife in their local area because we've we've all spent so much so much time walking the same routes near near your house or being in your garden a bit more, just looking a little bit more closely at things. And I bet people have started to appreciate that there's there's a hell of a lot more life than they realised, and now they want more of it. Mm. Yeah, well, we've seen the uh, the, the paths of cars outside places like the Longmind and the Reekin and you know uh, these place these beautiful spaces where you can go out and walk. Um, you know what i mean it's very appealing isn't it when you're stuck in the house and what you've got these beautiful hot these beautiful places out on the doorstep where you can go and walk in you know um i i was very lucky i mean i've spoken to a few people that have been out there and done, done similar things to yourself but i mean one of them that really struck me was jordan romero um on on, on what's the difference um i think it was like 13 when he climbed mount everest and there was like this huge 
um it's huge consp- not conspiracy but the, the news of following them around and they, they were causing such a noise because they they, they they accused this family of child abuse basically because they were dragging this kid along putting him in these extreme conditions um how young were you when you started to get to those sort of high octane probably something a kid shouldn't be doing environments if you know what I mean. yeah i think my, my parents weren't weren't anywhere near as kind of borderline abusive as <laughs> it's not abuse though is it i mean if a child i don't know what yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I, personally i think what he did is absolutely extraordinary the fact that yeah, his parents gave him gave him the fuel to do that is, is amazing yeah. my parents gave, gave me the fuel as well but they, they certainly weren't pushy um, so for me, the first, what you would describe, I suppose, as, as a high octane adventure was straight after A-level. So I was 18 at that point and then spent a month cycling over the Himalayas in Kyrgyzstan, China and Pakistan. So that, that, that was certainly out of the ordinary. Um, but, but by that point, I was, I was quite mature. I'd done lots of local adventures by that point, cycling and rock climbing, and little bits of mountaineering and that type of stuff. So I, I felt prepared for it. And by me going through that and then my, my other brother, middle brother Rory, going through a similar thing at a similar time, age 18, canoeing the Yukon River in Canada. My younger brother, he felt that he was just that little bit more advanced because he'd seen the bigger brothers go through it sooner. So his first big high octane adventure was straight after GCSE. So age 16, Ooh. spent 26 days cycling around Iceland, just 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 him and dad. Uh, so yeah it was pretty extraordinary so I'm slightly, slightly jealous that because I was the guinea pig I was trialed out a little bit later Finn got to have just the, those slightly earlier adventures as a result of, of, of dad realising that you could do this to your children without damaging them from, from a slightly young age <laughs> well I mean that that sounds like the absolute dream uh, for me you know cycling around Iceland with your dad wow you know that's that's beautiful um, when because when, you'd be doing this from a young age even from the age of 18 uh, I mean like once you've done it for a while uh, and you, you go in one place and you go in another and you experience in one thing and this, this, you know, it must be really hard. Does it become difficult to come home? Oh, no, the opposite. It makes, makes coming home even more sweet, honestly. Like, spending time in the Himalayas or Sub-Saharan Africa or wherever it is, flying back over the green and pleasant land is always a, a wonderful moment. And coming back to Shropshire to begin with, or now I live in South Wales, which is, which is beautiful place I, I absolutely love coming home and the, the more i go away the more i love coming back i i do actually appreciate that because um i always talk about it on the show but i was very i'm very proud of it actually you know my wife being from colombia and we've been there a few times and me getting uh being able to get up close to, to a different culture you know and, and different way of life and it is completely different you know people are completely different whenever we go see a family in bogota or whatever there's it's a completely different experience the whole family nucleus is completely different to a family in, in the in the uk um and i'm enjoying myself when i'm there you know i find because everybody sort of lives lives in these really high apartments well like, i'll find myself standing on an apartment block with, with, at her nans and just look, watching and enjoying taking it all in but then at the same time i feel relieved when i get home it's really weird how that happens you know um what about uh natural co- when it comes to conservation why is it important to you what what is what you said there's a drive there, there's a natural sort of focus for you um where does that come from yeah it it's it, it shifted over time so it came from just being a youngster loving wildlife and therefore wanting to see it so going out and wanting to be close to animals and the types of places you get really close to really exciting animals are far 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 lands from the uk we've got some wonderful wildlife here in the uk but not much of it because we've killed it all and we've destroyed all the habitat and turned into roads and farms 
But if you go further afield, you can start to have extraordinary encounters with, with, with truly wonderful wildlife. And I started pushing for that from a relatively young age, going further and further afield and, and encountering yeah, pretty unbelievable things. I've been charged by a tiger. I've, I've handled a, a foot-long anaconda. Uh, I've been treed by an elephant. I've, I've been on foot with rhinos, all, all, all these types of things, which, which would fulfilling this childhood fantasy of, um, of wanting to spend time in nature and encounter wildlife and have these amazing experiences. But then over time, I suppose you start to realise that actually this stuff is dropping off a cliff in terms of numbers. So we, 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 are, we are removing wildlife at a rate of knots that is totally unsustainable. And that becomes just kind of viscerally painful to, to, to see that just from an individual animal welfare perspective let alone from the perspective of wanting my children and my grandchildren to be able to see these types of things and then as i've got a little bit older i've realized that there's there's, there's something more fundamental about it like just the, the, the we as human societies and the planet in general needs functioning landscapes full of wildlife with biodiversity we need the diversity of life in order for us to be able to survive or thrive Biodiversity is absolutely integral to maintaining climate regulation. If we lose our biodiversity, climate change is going to happen no matter what we do with fossil fuels. It's absolutely integral in terms of the ecosystem services it delivers to people, in terms of clean air, clean water, the soil that we need to grow all our crops, the flood mitigation that we need, the pollination services we need, all of that. It's absolutely critical in terms of pandemic prevention. Intact ecosystems regulate disease outbreaks. The fact that we're creating this interface with, uh, with, with wildlife, deforesting, pursuing the wildlife trade is increasing our exposure to zoonotic diseases. So it's, it's, it's changed for me from being just having a love of wildlife to then a respect for wildlife and a worry that it's being lost to now understanding that the loss of wildlife poses an existential threat to humanity. And this stuff has an, an integral, intrinsic right to be there anyway. And so I suppose my 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 concern has, has has heightened in the years as I've started to learn the connectivity of it all and how we must protect this and how every single one of us should be a conservationist. Because if you're not a conservationist, actually what are you for? If you're not if you're not trying to make the world a better place, if you're not trying to live in a nicer world, what are you for? And that's the problem, isn't it? Is, is people are living for today, not tomorrow. Uh, you know, when it comes to consumerism uh, and the, the the problems that that the extent of that causes, it, you know, even with like Elon Musk with the Tesla things, people are like, oh yeah, electric cars and everything. But you don't think about the batteries and the rate of people are buying these cars, the batteries once they're used, what happens to a dead battery? People it gets buried in the, in a desert somewhere, you know. Um, and you know, it's it's one of these things where. Uh, it's 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 difficult for for someone like me who's not who's kind of standing on the outside and 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 seeing all this happen because it's it's very harmful to see, um, you know when you see the, the the plastics in the oceans in the Malaysia and you know you see the the wildlife being killed in Africa and uh, the the pollution is one of the worst things for me. You know you know we you see you see the um, the houses that are on huts in the water and it's just rubbish all around them. It's heartbreaking. But it's happening here as well. Yeah. The, 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 the amount of littering, the air pollution, the, the flood issues. You're in Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury suffers because of bad bad farming planning further upstream. Every single year we have a flood as a result of not having enough trees in the watersheds. Whereas if we're putting nature back, Shrewsbury would no longer have a flooding issue. There's yeah. so many things that, that are happening close to home. And I think one of the mistakes people have made over the years is thinking, well, actually, this is just something which is going to happen in the future. Whereas really, this is happening now. And, oh, and yeah. make, making little changes to your life, 
will make your t- your today better as well as your tomorrow. So cycling instead of driving, you will be fitter, more healthy. You'll get outside and experience nature. Um, eating less meat, you will be less likely to have a heart attack <laughs> than, than if you're eating five five steaks a day. And you're making the world a better place while, while you're at it. There's so many little changes that can be made that actually make your life today so much better that are also contributing to the world in general. Um. How do you, when it comes to things like uh, farming planning or housing development, I mean, I'm in Sutton Grange right now, one of the new housing estates, and I feel guilty for saying this because we moved here because it was a nice place. But at the same time, it's a shame because there's that's all farmland that's gone. You know, it's all, it's all land that could have been done with something else. But at the same time, like, how do you combat that? Um, it must be frustrating for you because these guys are worth billions. Yeah. You know, any, any industry that's sort of just destroying the environment for, for, for profit, they're powerful people. Yeah, so what needs to change is the idea that nature is not an asset class itself. So this is changing. The, the Treasury, the UK Treasury, has just released a report called the Dasko Reports about the value of nature. And what we're now understanding is that you have to factor in nature to your, your economies. So if you if you get rid of a wood, and put a housing development on there, for example, or a road or whatever it is, you need to calculate what you're losing by getting rid of that wood. Well, you're, you're losing the pollination of all the insects that live in that wood. Pollination drives 35% of global agriculture. Got to take that into account. Mm. You are losing the shade and the cooling effect of that woodland, which has a massive impact on climate change and everything else. You are losing the uh, oxygen-generating properties of that wood you are losing the uh, the water cleaning generate uh, generating properties of that wood or its flood mitigation properties or all these other things there's so many aspects that it's doing let alone carbon sequestration and the massive impact that that has on us as well so you actually have to be able to take into account the, the the like the dollar value of a hectare of land left natural versus being converted to something else and that is now possible to do. And you can actually make a comparison as to, as to what is going to cost us more. And what it turns out is that more often than not, as in over 50% of the time, leaving land as it is, is actually better for us economically than converting it. So what we need to do is, is restore land. So if, let's say you've, if you, we need new housing estates because people need places to live. That's, that's guaranteed. We've got masses of what you would call brownfield sites that can be redeveloped. Places that have got old bits of industry or other forms of development that can be, re, that can be redeveloped for housing. But when you do develop these housing initiatives, what they also need to do is they need to have green spaces in them. Green spaces are great for people's mental health. They're vital for climate change. They're vital for biodiversity. They're vital for ecosystem services. So having having green spaces, trees everywhere, trees lining our avenues. How beautiful is that? Mm. Great. It's it's good for everything. Why on earth have people got plastic lawns? Plastic lawns should should be criminalised. That shouldn't happen. We should be having little wildflower patches everywhere. Everyone wants to see wildflowers. They're great for nature. They're great for the planet. They're great for humanity. They just need a little bit more forward thinking to understand that actually for our own survival nature is integral so we need to we need to develop that has to happen because we have people that need to be housed but we can do so in a way that isn't totally detrimental to the planet i always say we should go up like uh, we do bogota we'll just go up and make apartment that's the other way of doing it um i mean i'm lucky at the moment because we've got the rebrook right behind me i'm gonna take my boy the sun's out today hopefully it stays out we're gonna go and uh you know Gonna have a paddle in the water. I don't know how cold it's gonna be, but we're gonna be cold. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
we discussed uh, last time you came on my show, uh, which was a different show. People want to listen to it, but um, we discussed the, the the hazards of going out uh, and exploring around the world. Now, like there, 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 like there's an unmeasurable amount of danger when it comes to traveling to some of the most repart- remote parts of the world. But you seem to have witnessed it all. <laughs> you seem to have seen it all because um, you had the the accident, didn't you, when you broke your back as well, which was uh, looked horrific. Um, you know, we were, uh, the last show we were talking about the the square off with the pirates that you had. Uh, you know, <laughs> traveling across the ocean on a on a rowboat. Um, how how do you set yourself up psychologically for things like this? Yeah, I guess I'm not risk averse. Is probably <laughs> the easiest way to describe it. Um, so again, it was I suppose part of being being brought up in a family where where, where risks were managed, but risks were also taken. So we we would go rock climbing, or we would go on a canoeing trip as a family, and we would do all these little things where, where there's, there's an inherent risk to them. But that's not a bad thing. There's an inherent risk to everything. There's an inherent risk to getting in your car and driving to work or yeah, whatever course. it is you're doing. It's just there's a perception of risk in, in other activities, which which puts a lot of people off. But no matter what we're doing, you're trying to manage the risk that, that, that you're in. And I guess I've just, I, I'm just willing to manage greater risks than, than many people and find a bit of a buzz in it as well. Lots of people, that myself included, you seek out these thrills, these risky situations, because there's, there's a buzz, something... That joie de vivre that you get out of being kind of on the edge, and then coming back and talking about it around the campfire. There's that's hard to replicate if you're just living a, a normal nine to five life. Oh man, that's 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 a great way of looking at it, I suppose. You know, um, especially the risk factor of, of everyday life. Why not? Why not do it in the in the Himalayas instead <laughs> instead of between Shelford and Shrewsbury every day? Uh, um, and I wanted to talk. I didn't get to talk to you last time about. Uh, this because we didn't have much time, but the 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 elephant conundrum that's going on in um, Africa right now, the the the, the pandemic with the elephants, um, that, is that something that you're working on at the moment? And can we explain? <laughs> what, can we explain what's going on first? I think that's probably the most important thing. Explain what's going on with the elephants, and then have you? So elephants are suffering extraordinary amounts of persecution by poachers as a result of demand for ivory, principally in China, but in other parts of the world as well. The United Kingdom is is still a major consumer of ivory, both as a transit and as a destination hub. So elephants, when I was born in Africa, there were about 1.2 million elephants. So that's 1981. And here we are now in 2021, and there's around 400,000. So it's been a 60% loss in my lifetime. And that's, that's pretty catastrophic. There's been obviously way worse losses historically there were probably over 20 million elephants roaming africa in the middle ages and and now here we are a few hundred thousand left Crazy. many of the populations are isolated half, like half of those elephants are all in in one area in southern africa around where the zambezi is so on, on either side of the zambezi river botswana zimbabwe zambia that kind of area and the other 50 percent are spread around the rest of the continent and they're, they're suffering really quite awful persecution and it's all because of trinkets because people want to have a bit of carved ivory on their mantelpiece, which is just its just a sign of disposable income. It's a sign that you're wealthy. In the same way as someone here might want to buy a Porsche in, instead of driving their, their, their VW just to show off how wealthy they are. In, in other cultures and in ours, people like to show it off in, in other means. And, and having a, an ivory carving is a way of displaying your income. The fact that Disgusting, to have that ivory carving means that an elephant has to be killed is shockingly greedy 
it's it's horrible and then you know the, you take into account there's a virus that go around killing all the elephants too um ah you mean what happened in botswana last summer we, yeah. we still don't know what we still don't know what killed them so it, it, it could be a virus but but there's there isn't strong evidence to suggest that it is it, it could be a cyanobacteria in the water so harmful algal bloom but there isn't really strong evidence to, to suggest that's what it is we just don't know what it is but what, what happened was that about 700 elephants died last year, between March and July last year in Botswana, which is a lot. Yes, <laughs> a of course. Especially when they were already uh, dying anyway. You know, there's to look after them. Absolutely. And the fact that we don't really know the cause, like there's, there's various things that have been suggested and, and there's, there's little bits of evidence to, to support various potential theories, but we don't really know what it is makes it all the more worrying that it might happen again. And here we are in 2021, and we've, we've lost 69 elephants in a similar area, similarly unexplained in the last few weeks. And I'm hoping that this isn't the start of what happened last year. I'm really hoping that we don't lose another 700 elephants from an area that, well, they would say they can afford it. They've got quite a few elephants. But really, if you start losing 700 a year, every single year suddenly things get pretty serious pretty quickly mm. especially when there's already a threat to walk to them anyway you know you want to look yeah how worrying how worrying that is especially yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it is worrying and you're right but i think the, the big things to take into account is the fact that elephants elephants are incredibly intelligent they are very emotional they have very strong family bonds so it's worrying for us but it must be absolutely terrifying for these elephants that are seeing their friends and family members dying around them. They don't know why. So what happened last year when the 700 died was, was the, the main bulk of that elephant population all, all scarpered as you would. They, they fled the area where everyone was dying and they, they fled to the east as far as they could go to run away from this death. And imagine that starts happening again. The, the, the knock-on psychological impact that will be having on the elephants is, is terrible. That in turn has a negative impact on people because stressed elephants are much more aggressive. So you're more likely to have human elephant conflict, which is one of the biggest problems happening in Africa. So this, this entire situation is catastrophic from, from, from all perspectives. Wow. And what a problem to have to, have to, you know, land on your doorstep. Uh, Niall, uh, what's coming here? You know, you got people like me on your podcast. What's your opinions on this? We just don't know. It must be so frustrating to keep talking about it, you know, but I'm sorry. No, I love, I love talking about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm a typical scientist and I'll, uh, I won't give a definitive answer unless there is one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's very few definitive answers to anything in work, in life, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Um, have you got anything coming up at the moment that you're going to be working on? The main thing I work on day to day is that I help to run an organization called National Park Rescue. I'm one of the directors of National Park Rescue. And we aim to identify national parks in Africa that cannot cope with the poaching crisis and then to try and resuscitate them. So we're currently working in a national park in Zimbabwe called Chisarira National Park, which had lost 3,000 elephants in a 10 year period, previously lost all of its rhinos very bad losses of buffalo and lions and everything else we've been there now for three years and we've completely turned the park around had, had a quite extraordinary comeback poaching is down by 98 percent. elephant poaching is down by 90 percent lion numbers are up by 40 percent etc etc so we've, we've had a quite extraordinary impact wow. and that's my my day-to-day -day work is 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 for national park rescue making sure that we can make these places safe and then try and grow the organisation to take over more parks, start managing more parks to expand our 
our net of protection as widely as we possibly can. 98% drop in poachers. That's amazing. Yep. And that was an independent study performed by the local wildlife authority and uh, an NGO. And in a two-year period, they recorded 98% fewer incursions by poachers inside that national park. But that's just a group of people that were there before you guys were. No conflict. We do what we want, boys. There's nobody, nobody's going to stop us. You guys rock in. They're like, oh, we've got to go. You're, you couldn't actually you couldn't be more accurate. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's literally exactly what it was. The, the poachers were acting with total impunity, knowing that they just weren't going to be disturbed. Basically, and there's there's a network of roads inside the national park. The park's big; it's two thousand square kilometers. And there's a network of roads, tracks really, that there's five hundred and forty square kilometers in length in total. And yet, almost all of those were undrivable, totally undrivable. So the, the rangers couldn't patrol in large parts of the park because the roads couldn't get them there. What we've done is open up the roads and start deploying the rangers all around the park again. And suddenly the poachers are very surprised that there's <laughs> this bunch of chaps with AKs suddenly walking around again. Whereas previously they, they've they've had total total free reign of many of the far flung parts of the park. Um, how bad of a of a crime is it to be a poacher in in like Africa? Is it is it, can you go to prison for it? Um, is it just a, a case of yeah yeah. Country to country, it varies. But if you kill in Zimbabwe, where, where I work, if you kill or are trafficking in, so if you have have the products of endangered species or species that are specially protected, which, which includes elephants, pangolins, rhinos, pythons, if you if you are trafficking or killing any of those, it is nine years in jail, Ooh. and you do not want to spend nine years in jail in Zimbabwe. So, so it's it is seen very very seriously. And the, these are the natural assets of the country, a country that generates a huge amount of its income on tourism. Let's, Botswana, as an example, generates between ten and twelve percent of its GDP on people wanting to come to that country to look at elephants. So every person that kills an elephant, you are robbing the rest of your country of of their income by doing this. And as a result, the law is very, very tough on those people. Good. <laughs> Good. And get what they deserve. Um, is there is there something that uh, is happening in the world at the moment that you'd love to sink your teeth into? Something that you'd really... Um, so somewhere you'd like to go to observe or to work on, to investigate. Is there something you'd like to do? I would like to sort out British national parks. Our national parks are an absolute shambles. <laughs> We've got eleven in the in, in England, and then some more in Scotland and Wales, and they they do not deserve the name national park. Okay, so they're, 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 they're elaborate sheep farms in in many cases. They're not there really to preserve to preserve nature. Biodiversity isn't front and center. If you if you go to a national park in Southern Africa, there is an amazing sense of anticipation as you drive towards the national park and suddenly you start seeing more and more wildlife. You drive through Dartmoor, you will see ponies and sheep. Good luck seeing anything else. <laughs> it's just we, we wow. really need to have a have a have a strong think about what our national parks are for. They should be for recreation purposes for people to go and enjoy, but you will enjoy them more if there's nature there as opposed to just just farms. So we, we need to change the land use of our national parks for our own purposes, for nature purposes. We would also generate significantly more money out of national parks that have got nature than out of national parks that don't. To use Wales as a country, as a total example, 90% of the country is set aside for sheep farming, which generates under 2% of the GDP and way under 2% of, of employment. If you took just, just 10% of that area set aside for, for sheep farming, 10 national parks, and put stocked it with wildlife, 
allow wildlife to come back. Think of all the jobs that would be created for the people that would be wardens or tour guides or shop attendants or car park attendants or whatever it is in that place. Think of the amount of enjoyment for all of the people visiting it. Think of the economic benefits in terms of coming to visit. if If you give nature a chance, you can make so much more out of an area of land than if you've got it as a, an elaborate upland sheep farm, which is basically the state of our national parks at the moment. Yeah, when it comes to like stocking up wildlife and things, was it was it was it wasn't beavers? Was it that's just been reintroduced mm-hmm. into beavers in the UK? That's been reintroduced. How how extraordinary! I didn't even I had no it's idea. A, it's beavers. amazing. <laughs> I didn't know they were native from the UK. I didn't know that. Uh, lots of things are native and have been extirpated. Wolves, bears, lynx, all of these things used to be here and, and no longer are. Great. I would love in my lifetime for lynx to be introduced, and that's genuinely a possibility. Wolves and bears is a little bit less likely. There's, there's, there's quite a strong farming lobby and quite a lot of parents with, with children that would be quite concerned about having those types of things. But landscapes are so much more, firstly, exciting. Secondly, vital. They, they have their vitality back when you have predators in those landscapes. They, they, the, the landscape of fear means that, that, that area, areas get cleared of your herbivores like deer that are currently chewing all the, all the trees down, meaning that trees can't regenerate. So suddenly you get regeneration of trees. This has happened in Yellowstone National Park and many, many other places. Beavers create amazing wetland landscapes, which are wonderful for biodiversity, then flood mitigation, clean the water, all of these things. If we start bringing wildlife back, we will see our own lives improve immeasurably, as well as putting something back for nature as well. Now, how how do how do we fight the big wig the, 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 the big the fat cats out there that are kind of like Oh, you know, I'd rather I'd rather build a, a council estate. I'd rather build this or that rather than introduce beavers and a wildlife a wildlife park. What's good? No, how do we how 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 do we do this? <laughs> because like money is the only thing that seems to be talking at the moment in the world, and it's it's sickening. But it's a false economy. If you, if you think that building a, a car park here is better than having a wood, then how much is it going to cost you for the flood damage repair? Yeah because that car park can't absorb any rain. Think about the, the actual cost long-term of all of these things, as opposed to the short-term money, which will be made by one person or one development company. The actual cost to society of this is enormous. So two things have to happen. Firstly, the government has to realise that, that we need to be thinking about cost to society as opposed to earnings of one, one small individual, who's probably a donor to the Conservative Party, let's put it that way. <laughs> and then secondly, it needs to become taboo in society. If, if, if you are the type of person that is trashing nature, you should be seen as a pariah. In the same way as someone that is that, that, that trashes other people is seen as a pariah. So we need we need people to start to recognise that preservation of natural places and an encouragement of wildlife is integral to us as a species as well as vital in terms of planetary health. What we're looking at nowadays as a result of COVID nineteen is that there's the promulgation of this theory of one health that you may have heard. The idea that human health animal health and environmental health are totally interlinked. And if we want to promote human health, we have to take into account environmental and animal health at the same time. Um, I mean, that's beautiful, by the way. But like, there's there's something going on in Shrewsbury at the moment. I don't know if you're aware now, but the 
uh, with the slight slight really relax of of COVID uh, restrictions, the, the the quarry in Shrewsbury has been inundated with with kids sort of uh, chilling out there, drinking, leaving mountains and mountains of beer bottles and and rubbish. And there's this ongoing argument on social media at the moment: should they, shouldn't they? You know, these kids have been cooped up for years. Should let them off, blow off a bit of steam. And then there's people like, but they're leaving the litter. And then there was this guy who who put this obnoxious comment like, um, oh well, he's he's keeping the park attendants him with a job when they pick up the litter you know this is an ongoing battle what i think that the most sensible way to look at it is going and partying in the quarry isn't necessarily the only way to go and blow off some steam there's no excuse to go and destroy the the environment there by leaving your litter everywhere um and what what you're talking about niall is you know is passing on those responsibilities to your ch- children tell those kids that it's important to look after your environment because then we don't have problems like this where they don't care about leaving their budweiser bottles everywhere it's wrong i think what you've touched on there is the, the don't care aspect is really important so Littering is a sign of disconnect from society. You are disconnected. If you are if you are willing to trash your, your local environment, your local street, your local the, the quarry, your local park, by leaving litter, you are disconnected from society. So that's a systemic issue. This isn't just, just about people blowing off steam. That is a systemic issue that people no longer feel or, or, or have never felt a connection with society and the world around them. So that needs to be addressed at government level. We need people to feel as though they are responsible citizens, that, that this is... A, that they are stewards of the planet, stewards of their country, stewards of their town, stewards of the environment. And littering, for me, is it, it's it's one of the most obvious signs that there's a, 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 a deep malaise in society and a disconnect that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I wonder if we can come up with a solution for that because, you know, I'm, we're not going to do it on this show, and we're not going probably not going to do it in the next few weeks or what have you. But like, I'd just love to see a place where you know maybe yes, the youth can go out and, and enjoy themselves because you know we've all been young, we all know what it's like to to be cooped up, um, but at the same time they're not causing so much damage, you know because. Take your little home. <laughs> there's, there's just no excuse for that. Dropping, that is un- unforgivable. And the people defending uh, kids for for making the quarry in such a state, uh, you shouldn't do that. No, no I way. used to go drinking in the quarry. I loved going drinking in the quarry, but I always took a plastic bag to bring my bottles home with me. Well, there you yeah. go. Your bottles of hooch and your, and your wicked. I absolutely loved all that. But then <laughs> you take it home with you. There's simply no excuse for littering. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... I think um, I think there's there's going to be a huge economic effect on, on you know economic when the world opens again. Um, I imagine it's going to be like I keep saying I've said it a few times on the show like the buffet is now open the buffet is now open people are just going to scatter aren't they they're just going to create havoc around the world especially us Brits you know it's like we turn up with a towel and some sunscreen looking for a sunbed that's what's going to happen can you I mean. Have you been collecting data during, uh, you know, not just you, but you got, uh, you know, uh, as a as a science uh, data about um, what's been happening during the pandemic to wildlife? Um, has it flourished? Has it has it affected it anyway? And are you expecting things to change when the world opens again? Uh, again, typical science answer: it depends. <laughs> so, so, so in, in some places, wildlife has absolutely flourished and uh, we're seeing Dudno, the wonderful images of the goats going back into town I that saw that stuff, <laughs> which is which is brilliant brilliant and, and there's many places where wildlife has been able to come back because there hasn't hasn't been quite, um there hasn't been quite so much pressure on it but then there's been other situations where 
wildlife parks have been stockpiled in greater numbers because there's been there hasn't been the same levels of law enforcement patrolling happening so poachers have been able to go and operate with impunity but then some countries because you can't travel it's difficult to transport your your products so if you're trying to take ivory from one place to another it's very difficult to do that because there's police roadblocks everywhere so country to country it depends what, what what's happened in general i believe is that people are starting to understand the link between wildlife health and human health because COVID-19 came from a breakdown in conservation it came from spillover of a disease which was in a bat probably to an intermediate species potentially like potentially a pangolin then into a human being which then spread around the world shut down the entire planet cost us 12 trillion dollars that means that people now realize there is a direct link between what we do with wildlife and what happens to us that I hope will not be forgotten in the coming months and years and if we if we remember that and we remember that if we treat nature with respect, our own prospects are so much, so much better. That will be the most positive thing that could possibly come from this entire pandemic. Amazing. No, you've been amazing to talk to. I always love talking to you. And um, I did say I want to get, I'll need to get you back on on what's the difference because I want to do like part one, part two, and part three. Because I feel like whenever I speak to you, I cover like 10% of you because there's so much to you. Um, we, I mean, I already, I literally breezed over your adventures around the world. Um, so, you know, but I, I've, you know, I feel grateful to have spoken to you today. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Nice to speak to you, Alex, again. Is, is there anything you want to shout out? Is there any sort of social media, any websites, anything you want to tell people about before you go? Please do have a look at nationalparkrescue.org, my, my organisation. And as well, if you're interested in this type of thing, which everyone is, endpandemics.earth. Uh, we're, we're all very personally affected by the pandemic at the moment. And I'm co-chair of End Pandemics. And National Park Rescue is one of the organisations that are involved in that. So please do check out those websites. And if you want to write to me, my personal website is nihilmccann.com. Fantastic. I'm doing the lawn mowing outside. Did I not know I'm recording? <laughs> <laughs> um, my, I, my daughter's screaming in the background as well. I know. I, that's why I thought I better let you go. You can deal with your family. Um, guys, before we go, I want people to check out our website, which is www.theshrewsburybiscuitpodcast.co.uk. That's made for us by our friends at Web Orchard. And also, I need you guys to keep your eyes peeled. I've been... Uh, working to try and get some CVs out, well, uh, CVs out to radio stations. I mean, I, I thought, why not do this thing on the radio that I do? I'm kind of good behind the microphone. Why not? And I managed to get my own radio show, which is crazy, for a brand new radio station uh, called <laughs> Splash Damage. It's uh, based in Liverpool, but it's international, so I can do it from my studio here. Um, and I'm going to be creating a show called Naughty Talk because uh, I, I, I think one of the most... Um, um, Less talked about decades of music is probably the noughties, you know. Uh, so I'm going to be doing playing noughties music and a bit of podcasty type talk as well. So look out for that. I'm really excited. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's really good. It's the beginning. So anyway, guys, thank you very much for catching us. I'm going to stop now before the, the, the lawnmower starts and ruins the whole show. Niall, you've been amazing. Cheers, Alex. Great to talk Thanks to you. Thank you very much. Peace out.